Our current sermon series is Excelling in Our Love for One Another. And as you know, if you've been present in this series, we are walking through the one another passages in the New Testament epistles that teach us how to love one another in the body of Christ. And we are examining these verses in the larger context in which they are found. And today we come to Lesson 10, which I've entitled, The Walk of Love. And our focal passage is 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And let me introduce the passage this way. Although salvation and acceptance by God is not based on our efforts to keep God's law. You know that. Uh, salvation is what? The gift of God. It's not of works. And we receive that gift, what? Through faith. And that gift, of course, is the Lord Jesus Himself uh, who transforms us as He paid the penalty of our sin and rose again to give us new life. So although salvation and acceptance by God is not based on our efforts to keep God's law, that does not mean that Christians have no obligation to God's laws. Uh, when a person is converted to Christ, he receives what? The gift. The gift of what? The Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead actually comes to dwell within the heart and life of that person. And the Bible tells us that as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the heart and life of a believer, He writes God's laws on the believer's heart, creating the desire to obey God. And then through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we are given the empowerment to turn from sin and to follow God's moral laws. Salvation changes a person. It changes their desires. It changes the direction of their life as they turn from sin to follow Jesus. It changes the way they walk. And this is what our passage is all about today. So look now at four characteristics. And I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes. They're rather simplistic today, just the four points with the Scripture uh, passage. But look at the four characteristics of a walk of love. And the first deals with the underlying motive behind all that a Christian does, and that is what? To please God. That's that first point, to please God. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Notice the way a Christian ought to walk is based on what? We're told commandments. Commandments. That come from where? That are given by the Lord Jesus. Of course, he's referring what? To the New Testament Scripture. And the word commandments here, interestingly, is a military term. 
It refers to the orders that would be handed down by a superior officer. Simply put, Christians are to obey the orders of the captain of the Lord's host, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our motive to obey his commandments should be what? To please him. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. I've always loved this verse. It says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And that should be our motive, to please the captain of the Lord's host through obedience. Now, never lose sight of the fact that we do not seek to please Jesus, to win His love. We seek to please Him because we already possess His love, an unconditional love that will never fail us. The very purpose of the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate today, is to remember our Lord's sacrifice, His sacrifice on our behalf and the salvation that He secured for us and has given us, as we mentioned earlier, as a free gift. We conclude with the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, He, Jesus, died for all. Why? That they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. Also notice the exhortation here in 1 Thessalonians for to excel still more. To excel still more in what? In that walk to please God. The word excel literally means to overflow. It means to go over and beyond. A a closely related form of the word means extraordinary. We are to live spiritually extraordinary lives. We are to excel more and more in our Christian walk in order to bring greater and greater pleasure to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are never to be satisfied with where we are presently in our Christian walk, but we are continually to strive to know and please the Lord Jesus more and more. Paul expressed this sentiment in a beautiful way in the book of Philippians, and in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, we read, he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. See, there's that sense of movement, of growth in the Christian life. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching what? Forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, a walk of love begins first with our focus on Jesus. And to reciprocate to His love by living a life to please Him. Look at the second characteristic of a walk of love that Paul mentions here in 1 Thessalonians 4, to purify your life. Not only to please God, but to purify your life. Look at verses 3 through 8. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You say, what is God's will for my life? God's will is your sanctification. You say, well, what is sanctification? 
Big word, but it's simple to understand. It simply refers to the process. And again, it is a process. We're talking about growth. But it's the process. It's, it's growing in being separated from sin and set apart to God's holiness. It's the process of growth by which we become more and more like Jesus as we follow Him. More like Him in internal character as well as outer conduct. And in these verses, Paul addresses a very specific area of sanctification, moral purity. Notice he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, pause right there for a moment. The admonition to abstain from sexual immorality was needed because many of the Thessalonians lived in immorality prior to their conversion to Christ. Sexual immorality was pervasive throughout the Roman Empire as it is in America today. And Paul wanted these new believers to understand that God had called them to live a pure life in a polluted world as a testimony for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let let me ask you, who created sex? Who created sexual relations? God. Therefore, God alone has the authority to what? To govern it. Who did God create sexual relations for? Well, the Bible is very clear. A man and a woman who have become husband and wife through the union of monogamous marriage. Why did God create sex? He created it not only for procreation, but for the mutual pleasure and enjoyment of both husband and wife to express and grow their union and love for one another. Sexual relations is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing when it is an expression of love and respect between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage. The corollary to that is that sexual relations is forbidden by God in every other context, whether it is with a heterosexual partner before marriage or outside of marriage and adultery or in a homosexual relationship. God has placed these prohibitions on sex, not because he's some sort of cosmic killjoy, but because he wants to protect you. He wants to protect our culture from the harm that comes about by abusing this wonderful gift that God has given us. Therefore, we have God's command here in verse 3. Abstain from all sexual immorality. Now, go back to the passage. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, possess his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, pause right there again a minute. Notice, we are to exercise by God's grace through the power of that Holy Spirit that dwells within us control over our bodies in a way that will be holy and honorable before God instead of giving in to sexual immorality, which the Apostle Paul says is characteristic of those who what? Do not know God. 
Now, the passage continues that no man, don't miss this, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warn you. Now, stop right there. Notice, God draws a line in the sand. God himself. No sex outside of marriage, and to go beyond that is always to defraud someone. The word defraud means to wrong or to uh, overreach or to be out of bounds. Simply put, God has written no trespassing over every man or woman who is not someone's marriage partner. And please notice, God has also posted the warning, trespassers will be prosecuted. Where it says the Lord is the avenger, the word avenger is a judicial title, a very formal judicial title of that day for civil servants, and it refers to one who executes judgment and chastisement on lawbreakers. Uh, For example, I think of uh, Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. The one who commits adultery is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. And this doesn't mean that even a believer, if he falls into sex morality, cannot know God's forgiveness. But there are consequences to our actions. I think of King David. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He knew God's forgiveness, and God restored him into fellowship with God. But he, with the rest of his life, knowing the consequences of his sexual immorality. And yes, God even used those consequences to draw David even closer to God, to know a deeper intimacy with God, to know God's grace and all of that. But don't you think if David could have done it all over again, he would have made a different decision on that rooftop that night? Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and look at the very last part of um, that section of Scripture that we're looking at right now, verses uh, through 3 through 8, says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And notice... I wish we had more time, but the emphasis here is not on what a believer rejects when they commit sexual immorality, but who they reject, God himself. Ultimately, the act of sexual immorality is an act of spiritual adultery against the one who loved you so much that he went to the cross where he bled and died in order to possess you as his bride, a bride that would love him, that would adore him, that would worship him, for him to be your bridegroom who would always protect you, cherish you, treasure you, and watch over you. And not only that, you are resisting the person of the Holy Spirit who God gave you to empower you to walk in moral purity. So, what's involved in a walk of love? First, our motive is to please God. We're to purify our lives before God. And then look at the third truth. 
Practice love toward one another. Practice love toward one another. And here is where we find the one another uh, verse. Uh, Verses 9 and 10. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God, here it is, to love one another. For indeed you practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, notice this phrase again, to excel still more. He commends them for loving one another, but he says, don't be satisfied where you are. Still love one another even more. And I've taken the opportunity many times in this sermon series to commend this church family for your love for one another. I am often just blown away by your love towards one another and how you come to one another when uh, people are falling under the weight of burdens and particular needs and how you invest in the lives of one another. But he says, excel still more. Now, two things very, very quickly. You learn love. Notice that word in the, in the verse, uh, verses practice. Practice. He talks about how they practice love. You learn love through the practice of love. And, and you say, what does that mean? Three things very, very quickly. You have to just, you just got to set down this stake in your Christian life before God. That you will not let feelings dictate your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. You must realize that love will often be a decision to invest in the life of a person that's going to run contrary to your feelings right now. So are you going to follow your feelings or are you going to obey God? Then second, you must bring your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. You must recognize thoughts and attitudes towards others that are contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you recognize that, you must confess that and you turn from those inappropriate thoughts, those improper attitudes, and you turn to God's truth to focus on what God has said and then you have to step out and obey God's truth whether you feel like it or not. And, it's, and I've always said this from the pulpit. It's amazing to me when you read the New Testament and especially the teaching of Jesus, he always puts love in very concrete terms. You either do it or you don't do it. Again, if you have somebody that hates you, do good to them. If somebody hurts you, forgive them. If somebody abuses you, get on your knees and pray for them. If you have someone who's out to destroy you, feed them. Meet a need in their life. Love, as described in the are always action words. I've told you before, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Where in our English Bibles, as he's describing love, they appear to be adjectives. But in the Greek text, they're all verbs, action words. So I'm confronted every time with a decision. Will I obey God or will I not? And then, of course, notice again that repeated exhortation to excel still more, uh, but this time in relationship to loving one another. We're going to have challenges with one another. That's okay. God allows those challenges to come in a church family to give us an opportunity to learn love. And therefore, we need to receive every person as God's gift to provide us that opportunity to go deeper with him. So please, God, purify your life, practice love, and then the last one, pursue integrity with unbelievers. Pursue integrity with unbelievers. Look at um, verses 11 and 12, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet or a peaceful life 
and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Now, this verse, of course, is not saying that there aren't times of crisis that we all experience where we do need one another and we need one another's support, even financial support. But we all should have a willingness to work, a willingness to support ourselves, not to be dependent upon others, but to trust God for our uh, provision. And, uh, and again, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you discover there that there, there apparently was, was a problem within the church at Thessalonica. Because of a misunderstanding related to the return of Christ, many of them had stopped working. And they were being supported by other church members. And because they had stopped working, they had become idle. And as they became idle, they became busybodies. And apparently, he's sort of addressing this issue here. And he says, hey, you need to have as an ambition to live a life of integrity before unbelievers who are watching your testimony. And you want to demonstrate a desire to be at peace with all men as far as it's possible with you. And you want to demonstrate a good work ethic. And you want to behave properly towards outsiders. So, what is a walk of love? It's to please God, to purify your life, to practice love, and to pursue integrity. Now, as we come to the Lord's Supper, now we've just been talking about our walk of love as an opportunity to please God. Well, here we put our focus on Christ's walk of love for us. His walk to Calvary. When He went there to die for you. To pay for the penalty of your sin. And to rise again to offer you forgiveness. To offer you new life. To give you that gift of the Holy Spirit who comes and does write God's laws on your heart. And empowers you to follow God, to please Him, and to honor Him. And I think this morning, in light of the message, as we come to the Lord's Supper, uh, we need to see that uh, this is a time to worship. And let's not make worship a very complicated thing. Worship is our response to the revelation of who God is and what He's done for us. In other words, we are called upon as believers to reciprocate to the love of God. Because He first loved us, we are to love Him. And how do we reciprocate? By surrendering our lives to follow Him. I think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, as you consider the mercies of God, as you consider Jesus and all that He's done for you, and canceling out your sin debt, imputing His righteousness to you, to give you a right standing before God. On behalf of all of that, present your bodies, present your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of spiritual. You know what the next word is? Worship. This is how we worship God. And let's be very clear. The only reason you and I can surrender our lives to God, and we surrender our lives on what? The altar of the cross. That cross where Jesus sacrificed His life for you and I, we're to come to that cross and surrender our lives to Jesus. But the only reason He can find our sacrifices acceptable and holy is because that cross 
We're sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're told whoever touches, embraces the cross of Christ through faith in Jesus is declared justified, sanctified, glorified before God. And so we lay down our lives in surrender, trusting through the power of the Holy Spirit we'll be given the grace to please God, to purify our lives, to practice love, to pursue integrity, integrity to be transformed. We, we talked about this, about recognizing inappropriate thoughts, turning to God's truth. We're transformed by what? The renewing of our minds as we do bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Why? So that we might prove what is that, what good and acceptable and perfect will of God in obeying His commandments to please Him. So as we come today, let's recognize we worship, we adore, we express our appreciation, but we also reciprocate to this love by laying down our lives and surrendering Him to follow Him. There's a moral ethic in the gospel itself. The gospel is not just something to be shared, it's something to be lived by you and I. Father, we thank you for this time of uh, celebration as we come to the Lord's Supper now. We thank you for Christ's willingness to offer his body up for us. That in his body he literally bore our sins. As we're told in the scripture, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And Lord, I'll never get over the, the marvelous truth. I mean, it's just the wonder of your grace and love that through redemption in Christ, through salvation, you've literally adopted us into your family. We're your child. And the wonder of your grace is that you love each believer as much as you love and value your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're just as committed to protect every believer, to provide for every believer, to glorify every believer, to finish the work you've given them to do as you were committed to do the same for your son, Jesus. So, Lord, our prayer then would be, oh, God, glorify us that we might finish the work you've given us here on earth to do. Empower us through the ministry, person, power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that would be pleasing to you, that that would be our motivation in all that we do, that you would give us the grace to purify our lives. And as we talked about, it is a process, but that we would plunge into greater and greater depths of that sanctification to excel still more, that we would practice love toward one another, and you would give us the grace to pursue integrity before unbelievers. So, Lord, this is our prayers. We lay our lives this morning as living sacrifices on the altar of the cross, realizing that you accept them as holy sacrifices because of the blood of Jesus that sanctified that cross. Lord, we come to you with boldness, with confidence, with the assurance of faith, and we lay this claim of faith on you that in Jesus' name, for His glory, 
that the fire of your holiness would fall on our living sacrifices. The fire of your holiness would fall on this church family, not to consume us in your wrath, for there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but yes, to consume the sin and the dross and all that is worthless, that you would refine us, that we would be vessels of honor through which you could extend your presence and express the lovely character of Christ, execute your will, and advance the gospel of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus. So, Lord, that's what we trust you to do, that you would light us to be your fuel and that we would shine bright for you in a very dark world, again, living pure lives in a polluted world as a testimony for Christ, which in his name we do pray. Amen.